Hello and welcome to the Future of Football brought to you by The Athletic. This week we're asking the question, why would anyone want to own a football club? To own a big club these days you need serious money that stretches into the billions so what's the end game for the super rich who own the super clubs? The proposed Newcastle takeover by the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund has shone a light on this so-called sports washing. What does this mean? How worried should we be about it? And lower down the pyramid, clubs have always relied on knights in shining armour in times of financial peril. But with a recession on the cards, who is going to ride to the rescue of our lower league clubs? This is the future of football brought to you by The Athletic. As ever, we have three of The Athletic's journalists with us, David Ornstein, Matt Slater and Jack Pitt-Brook. Let me start with you, uh, Matt. G- give me some of the reasons that you've encountered about why people would buy a football club. Because they're billionaires that want to be millionaires, showing off. It's probably quite a, quite a big one. Certainly, I think a traditional one. You know, once upon a time, football clubs were, were owned by sort of local Mr. Biggs. You know, someone who made a bit of money in toilet paper, for example, which was actually a true story involving a quite a well-known club. Um, and, they, and they just wanted to sort of express the fact that they'd made it. I think a reason closely aligned to that one would be competitive drive. I mean, these people are often, well, nearly always very successful business people in their own rights. Some of them really, really love sport. A couple of them might want to have been sports people. And you know they get a real buzz out of, of pitting their wits against other people. Uh, sport provides that. Uh, owning a club, a bit like owning a, a yacht or a, a Formula One team, a racehorse. You know, it beats golf, doesn't it? So I think you've got those two reasons. I'd say they were quite traditional reasons. I mean, another traditional reason, perhaps a slightly less... I don't know, kind of chippy one on my part would be, um, you know, giving something back. So I think a classic example there would be Jack Walker at Blackburn or Eddie Davis at Bolton, Steve Gibson, of course, still at Middlesbrough. Um, You know, local guys who, um, you know, want to, they're driven by kind of civic pride. So I think, you know, those those are sort of, I group those almost together as your traditional reasons. I think increasingly, and very much in the Premier League era, Making money, actually making money, has become a reason to do it. It was never a reason before, but 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 is now, and and is a sort of justifiable or certainly a realistic aim if you do it right. And then perhaps the most recent reason, which I know we're going to spend time talking about, is this very sort of modern concept of sports washing or reputation management or branding. You know, kind of making a statement. You know, you're you are not motivated by you know showing off to to people you you know you met in the rotary club you don't you're not doing it to give something back to to burnley you're doing it because you want to project an image of where you're from what you're about and premier league football in particular has become a great vehicle to do that so those are, i think those are the reasons yeah okay and let me come let me come to you jack then do you think the story of football club ownership has changed in recent years do you think it's always been the same but if it has changed when did it change most things seem to be around the time of the formation of the premier league i think it's changed a bit um there's a really persuasive section in david goldblatt's book the game of our lives where he argues that there was no golden era of football ownership like football ownership in in england has always been 
littered with people who were maybe not in it for the right reasons and that for every Jack Walker there's plenty of others who wanted to turn the ground into something else or who were just doing it out for reasons of vanity. So I don't I think don't think we should get too misty eyed about the realities of football ownership before nineteen ninety three. I think insofar as it's changed, I'd say that the f- two things go together really. One is the foreign element and with that is the political element. Like, you know, there there kind of is nothing really comparable to Roman Abramovich, Taksin Shinawatra, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia. Like, we haven't really... I can't think of any of anything that r- remotely bears comparison to that before 2003 when Abramovich brought Chelsea. So that, I think, is the big jumping-off point. And that was really... Abramovich really is, is the difference between the modern era of English football and the old days when, you know, a whole different set of questions started getting thrown up. And I, I actually think, David, that original point from Jack is the really interesting thing, in which is not to look through rose-tinted glasses at ownership of football clubs in the Everton, in the 80s and 70s, because a lot of the same issues were around then. Maybe not on an, an interna- not on an international scale, but certainly on a local scale. Yeah, definitely. And you, you are actually talking about an era when I was barely born, so I'm not going to refer <laughs> too far back in, Sorry, in history. Sorry, I should have asked Matt, shouldn't I? Sorry. <laughs> oh, hold well, on a minute. No, no comments on that. But the, the, these issues are probably just as prevalent now as they were then, but they're more high profile now because we're scrutinising every area of football. Um, it's across all forms of media. We're talking about owners that back in the day we might not have even known their names at certain clubs and not cared even if we did but now we do um we're interested in in the so-called good guys and bad guys the reasons for their takeovers the ethics behind it the finance and i'm i'm sure we'll get on to newcastle um you know all of us and matt especially on, on this conversation have done a huge amount of work uh, on the crises that have gone on in the last year at places like bolton berry macclesfield so that's a fascinating subject somewhere like berry alleged exploitation and and some some very murky business going on there to somewhere at certain other clubs like macclesfield where there is a, a personal interest there in in the fact that the owner is married to a local um, lady and so then you go up the leagues towards somewhere like Charlton Jack's written a lot about that it's one of the ugliest situations we've seen in recent years I mentioned Bolton there and and Lawrence Bassini who tried to buy them among a number of clubs you look elsewhere Rochdale where they're run on a really a club I know quite well on a really solid basis with with the ownership and, and board in things for the right reason you then keep weaving your way up Mike Ashley at Newcastle you know probably the most or one of the most unpopular owners in British football history certainly in the Premier League and, and you've got the Glazers as well are they using Manchester United to leverage debt to to do this to do that and and then the Cronkies will get onto as well I'm, I'm sure so as you weave your way up and down the leagues, you f- you find all of these different reasons. Um, then probably no different to reasons going back over the recent decades. But we know a hell of a lot more about them because of things like this. We talk about them more, and and the fans are more interested than ever before. Jack, you mentioned Roman Abramovich. Do you think his takeover of Chelsea changed everything? Yeah, I do. Um, because it was a takeover which happened for what we can broadly term political reasons. You know, I think Abramovich is 
political situation and his own interests were were part of the reason why he wanted the kind of the visibility of owning such a big uh, well-known chunk of British public life. Um, I think it also signalled to, I think it signalled two things. The first is that the Premier League was open for business internationally. You know, in the past we'd seen foreign players and foreign managers being very successful in England. But I think that was the first case of foreign owner, which I suppose was just, you know, that was just following the logic of the Premier League. Like the logic of the Premier League from 19, ever since 1992 was openness to foreign influences, foreign players and foreign money. So it shouldn't have been a surprise, but I think it probably it probably was. And then also th- that signal meant that very rich people from all around the world who wanted a stake in what, you know, what was by that point the biggest, the biggest sports competition in the world the biggest kind of one of the biggest global entertainment and media vehicles in the world that they could buy into it too that anyone from abroad could and that signaled this the start of this great wave of foreign investment of which you know Abu Dhabi is the standout example in terms of success but there are plenty of other ones not you know much smaller from the than Abramovich much less successful than Abramovich you know like Zingarevich at Reading or any number of Chinese owners or owners from the US. I think people realised after Abramovich that anyone with money could buy into this and nobody was going to stop them. Yeah, because we Matt, we'd had rich people before, you know, uh, own football clubs. You think of Lord Sugar owning Tottenham, if you want, for, for a while. But nobody with... It doesn't feel like anybody with either Abramovich's wealth wealth or the nationality issue no absolutely i think the chelsea takeover was hugely significant i think for a few reasons i mean you know jack's touched on them and i think the funny thing that that when i think about that takeover is he'd made an awful lot of money in the wild west situation that existed after the downfall of the soviet union and all kinds of things were going on in that period and parking your money in a very high profile prominent place where the rule of law existed, like London, was a really, really smart and sensible thing to do. Now, for a long time, I think that was the that was the rationale that most of us thought was get, was behind that that takeover. And also that you know, he's a very, very canny individual. He he is he's he made an awful lot of money in in metals and oil. You know the stuff that Russia had a lot of, but since then he's made even more money on just plain investment. He's a, he's a, he's a canny guy. And I think what we've learned more recently, and there's been a fantastic book just about this uh, very recently about, about Vladimir Putin and, and the strategy that he had, is that Abramovich was kind of directed to buy Chelsea. It, it, it really was, um, as one of Vladimir Putin's favourite businessmen, it was, it was sort of government-led certainly government directed. So I think that was the first of those highly political moves. Uh, and it's worked out well. It's worked out well for um, Abramovich. It's worked out well for Chelsea. I think the other key sort of episode in this, the other key chapter in this story really is is, is what happened a couple of years later when the Glazers bought United. And I think that's the, the other strand in this. So you do have these very, very increasingly political takeovers. You know, what else is going on here? I think the, the 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 arrival of the Glazers in at United was was not only interesting because of just the highly complicated and controversial way they bought that club that we are you know still United fans still argue and debate about to this day but it was the arrival of the US sport entrepreneur in a really really big way you know guys that that own and run sports franchises in the US where they expect to make money 
They don't do it because they're showing off. Sometimes they do it because they're showing off. Sometimes they do it because they're giving something back. But the way US sport is run is that, guys, we're all going to make money, right? We're, we are actually going to make a profit at the end of the season. And that brought a different dynamic to the league. And I know we're going to talk about the Cronkers. We're going to probably talk about Liverpool, Fenway Sports Group, and and, and on and on. We, we, we have seen more and more Americans come over and, tr- and, and have a go. Have a go at running an English football team in the way that they're used to running their own sports franchises back home, where they do make money. And, and I think that's been a really, really interesting kind of push-pull type situation. Some have come over and gone, wait, what, seriously, relegation is real? I, I, what? We get relegated. And, and you know, what's what's this? We, we How much do we have to pay these guys? And there's not a salary cap. And I genuinely have to compete with that guy over there who's paying, you know, and that's, been, I think, been really interesting over the last 15 years or so. But I think those two together, I think, the you know, the, the first really political takeover and then the arrival of the entrepreneur who thinks he can actually make money running a team. And whether it matters or not, that, on reflection, seems to be the beginning of the end for this word that many fans cling on to, custodianship. And if you think about it now, it's quite staggering how globalised the league has become from mainly English or domestic British-based boards of directors to, you know, if you think Manchester City, you under Thaksin Shinawatra and now Abu Dhabi, all of those you've mentioned, investments from Thailand in Leicester City, Malaysia in Cardiff City with Vincent Tan, another one of the eccentric characters of the game and it, and it goes right down the league you know there's there's middle eastern money there's um money from all quarters of the world it, it, even i think matt down down into non league football correct me if i'm wrong so it, it's absolutely amazing how the landscape has changed and and i'm sure we're going to talk about it 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 could be about to receive its biggest jolt so far yeah well english football has become you know a a a sort of representation of the global economy. So, you know, we've had, as I say, this sort of, uh, we've had oligarchs, you know, when Russia was doing well. We've had, as I say, this arrival of, of American money. You know, where's the, where's the money now in, in global sport? Well, it's coming mainly from the Middle East. With, you know, we've, we've had a sort of sovereign wealth fund era. The rise of the East, you know, you can sort of see yeah. that everywhere. You know, China, China's arrival, China, China's being much more assertive on the global stage. So Chinese money, Far East money. You know, and that kind of, I think, reflects and, um, you know, certainly the Premier League have had this very, very open door policy. You know, we are not going to turn people away. We are successful abroad. That is our USP. So that sort of has been a kind of sort of self-fulfilling prophecy about that. Um, and I think you're right. The, you know, the 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 minority now, the, the, the dying breed is that old fashioned owner. You know, you look at the Premier League now. We're talking about Norwich. We're talking about Burnley. West Ham, I guess I'd throw those in the mix, but they're you know Brighton, um, but we but there aren't many others that are, that I would say have that old fashioned owner with a really strong co- uh, connection to the local community. Although although you could argue that Abramovich is is an old fashioned owner now. Uh, I mean we're, yeah. we're we're not we're not far off twenty years, Jack, of Roman Abramovich owning Chelsea. And David mentioned the word custodian. Well, he has actually been a custodian for Chelsea, hasn't he? Given what, given everything that he's done for them. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very easy to build a sort of a, a pro Abramovich argument. Lots of Chelsea fans think that he's the best owner they could have they could ever have had, and it's easy to see why. Like you know, he's delivered, he's spent billions and billions on the team. 
He delivered what one, two, three, four, five Premier League titles that they wouldn't have won otherwise, a Champions League title that they wouldn't have won otherwise. He tried very hard to build a stadium that, you know, were it not for events in the real world, he probably would have be on the road to building by now. So if you I think it's often the case in these situations, if you separate what they've spent the money on from the question of where the money's come from, then people are very positive. Like, you know, this in exactly the same way that people are very, very positive about Abu Dhabi owning Manchester City, who'd again done done fantastically well and been not just more generous with their money, but also, I think, more intelligent with the way they've spent their money than anybody would ever have expected at the time. Uh, and the same way that Leicester fans will, will talk about their owners, David, as well, and Kumvichai and his family and, and what they have done for that football club. You know, it is possible to come from abroad and be a custodian of a football club. Oh, definitely. And there's every chance that British, domestic, English owners can be... <laughs> very bad custodians uh, if you like and you know ask Newcastle fans broadly what they think of Mike Ashley so there's no one size fits all and, and I've had some very sort of pleasant and impressive experiences around foreign owners so you, you're right it I guess what I meant is that it was the beginning of the end for custodianship as, as we knew it at the time and and I do wonder o- often where things go from here because this globalization and and this move away from uh, english british domestic owners is gradually going to manifest itself it probably already has but that's going to continue in in what we see the clubs doing the leagues doing because the premier league is 20 members they they run the league it's their decisions that hold sway the premier league is just a body that brings them together and so you know when we're looking at uh, potential plans to get the Premier League season finished one of the stories we ran exclusively on the Athletic and it, and it was um, it's been reinforced to me in, in in recent days was that they were considering finishing the season in China believe it or not and many people couldn't believe that at the time they reacted incredulously they thought it's inconceivable and it was true they they, they were thinking about it from a country that might come through the pandemic first that might be a great place for the Premier League to go in terms of uh, financially and the sort of uh, projects they they could do while they're over there and the links that they could rebuild etc etc all of these owners are thinking in a completely different way to many of our fans and some of them when I've talked about the future of football and and they start explaining why they want why the big clubs want to play each other around Europe more regularly and and why a super league might happen at some point and I say well, what are you on about you know the, the the fans here would wouldn't take that and some of them explain to you you, you don't realize the appetite for this league around the world and this is why we want to take it around the world and I'd really be fascinated to see the more influential foreign owners get whether they actually connect more with their home fan bases with with their money and their attempts to curry favor and maybe win political uh, points in this country or whether they start moving this league or parts of it or little aspects overseas and and whether they start to exert their influence in the product we're seeing on and off the pitch or whether it will be a bit of both and just more money uh, with which to do it let's go back to the american point that that you made matt um how much was that exaggerated and slightly tongue-in-cheek when you talk about the American owners coming over here? How, how much are they really naive when they take over a Premier League club? Uh, I think I would probably divide it into two two camps. 
one being naive at how difficult it is. I think they, they, they have perhaps come over and underestimated how competitive English football is and how quickly things can go wrong. And I think some of them find it really, really hard. And I, and I have heard apocryphal stories of a few just being overwhelmed by relegation, overwhelmed by it. You know, just what on earth are you doing? And if you think about it, when we have, you know, we've seen this in other sports when they have gone professional, when they have launched. So the two rugbies are a really good example. Both rugby union and rugby league have had lots of debates about ending relegation for a while, having a closed shop so that owners can make three, four, five year business plans. So it's not... We shouldn't be too shocked. We shouldn't think, oh, my God, are these guys idiots? Well, you know, some of them might be, but but most of them aren't. You know, but most of them have just been overwhelmed by how competitive it is. And then I get that other point that often gets risen. And I'm, I don't want to name drop here, but, you know, I've, I have spoken to a few guys who've come over and had a look at clubs. And, and one of them was um, the famous New York, New England Patriots owner, Rob Kraft. Bob Kraft. Is it Bob Kraft? Someone Robert Kraft, Kraft yeah. Robert yeah. Kraft, yeah. yeah. And it was around the time that he he kept being linked with Liverpool and Everton. And in the end, he sort of chose, he chose not to. I think actually he might have made a bid for both, but, but not a very high bid. But anyway, he walked away. And, and I remember I, I asked him about that and he, he genuinely seemed to really like soccer. I know he's got a close tie with, with the New England uh, MLS team. And he was talking a lot about Liverpool and he clearly knew something about it. And he, he, he came back to me and said, you know what, though, there's a real problem here. I, I am not going to come back here until there's a salary cap because I'll pit my smarts my 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 ability to spot a player, my my team's coaching now, are are you know strength and conditioning, whatever it might be. I'll, I'll pit my team against your team if we're all playing by the same rules. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna invest in this league while an oligarch can come in tomorrow and double the budget, while I could go up against the country next week and they have tripled the budget i mean how's that fair and i just think that's really interesting just only in that it's an insight into the u.s sports entrepreneur's mind jack do you think with a lot of these owners they get it and when matt refers to the americans my mind cast back to the liverpool situation over the was it the 77 pound ticket that they tried to implement and there was a walkout at anfield they were stung by it they quickly reversed their decision in recent weeks they have furloughed staff and then reverse that decision with a lot of people saying despite the the progress FSG have made at Liverpool they still don't quite get it and and I know this is a, a very minor incident but people pointing out but it shows the differences people pointing out that the the Liverpool owner's wife was on the podium at the Champions League final taking photos as, as they lift the trophy etc there, there, there are a number of examples we can even take it beyond the Americans when you look at someone like Vincent Tan at Cardiff who wanted to to change the shirt colour from blue to red because he felt red was his lucky colour and then had to change it back. There is the owner at Reading who I was speaking to somebody the other day when I asked how their wages to turnover uh, ratio is well over 100% and they said to me because the owner feels that some of the players are his lucky charm and he gives them whatever money they want or ask for and I've heard other stories about lucky shirt numbers and things so it's a long-winded way of asking do, do some of these guys just not get it but just want to be part of it for the glamour for the money for whatever yeah there's definitely an awful lot of not getting of not getting it amongst the owners of 
of teams in, in England. I'm not sure whether that's like a function of nationality or if that's just a function of being very rich. I think lots of very rich British owners of Premier League clubs could also be accused of not getting it. You know, Definitely. you can point Daniel Levy, I think, has been a fantastic owner for Tottenham, but with the furloughing of staff, which was then reversed, and with the ticket prices at the new Tottenham Stadium, he has you know, he has had those criticisms thrown at him. By Spurs fans, I think there's been, you know, there's lots of accusations of vanity thrown at British owners or price gouging or all the rest of it. So I think it, I think it's just something that comes more naturally if you're the kind of, if you are a incredibly rich and b determined to put yourself in the public eye in the way that any the owner of almost any football club is, then those really are the traits rather than the nationality that leads to them behaving in this ridiculous way. Just uh, just on one thing, because Matt's mentioned the relegation thing, bearing in mind that it is a closed shop, and I know this does come up every now and then, presumably, David, those 20 owners, and given how the Premier League voting pattern is, they could vote to change their regulations if they wanted to. A lot of people will wonder this and have discussed this before. You're, you're right. It, that has been suggested. And I think the, the, the answer David was giving a couple of minutes ago where he was talking about this, this very different dynamic, this, this different set of personalities and backstories around the table actually having an impact now on decision making because they're not rooted and grounded here. I think we're seeing that with TV deals and experiments and you know where to go next. And, and I think it's, we're going to see more and more of this. On that fundamental point, I think we just need to row back a little bit and remember the founding of this, the founding of this in 1992. There was a tripartite agreement between the FA, the Football League and the Premier League. So to do that would would unpick, if you like, the the the, the Bill of Rights. You know be, that that is the Constitution that the breakaway was allowed to happen. That that's and the, and the idea of the tripart agreement. I mean, the, the, the central principles are that the Premier League would continue to respect the uh, principle of promotion and relegation. So the three best teams that the EFL wants to send our way, we'll take them, and the three worst teams go your way. Uh, and the Premier League teams, and this is here's an interesting one, which I think will come up before they try and float off again and and uh, you know genuinely pull up the ladder, is that they will continue to take part in the EFL Cup, whatever we're calling it these days, Carabao, as as that at the time was a key part of the sort of solidarity that the best clubs were showing the rest of the pyramid. Okay, we might be leaving and taking nearly all the TV money with us, but we will at least boost your best asset EFL we will let our teams we'll we'll make our teams take part in your competition so that you can flog the TV rights and that tripart deal has held but Matt do you think that the recent moves by the big clubs to claw back a bit more of the international TV money suggests that that kind of founding document of the Premier League is at risk more than ever before from the richest clubs in the Premier League that balance seems a bit unstable. Yes and no. I mean, it, on the specifics of that deal, which I think is really interesting and is kind of what I was hinting at around, you know, the conversation changing around the table. The, the interesting thing about the international rights is that they took they took advantage of, of something that was never intended. So this is this is a problem you have with written constitutions. You can't think of everything, right? You can't future proof them, which is why you want them vague. So the tripart agreement is, is is really clever. It's not very long and it's pretty vague, and they've managed to think of most things. The international rights split was 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 one of those. Ah, we didn't think of that. Ah, damn. Back in 1992, we had no idea 
that Scandinavia would be paying more to watch our TV than theirs, uh, their, our football than theirs. We had no idea that we'd be able to get the Americans to pay us, you know, a billion dollars to watch Premier League football. They didn't even take our box scores. You know, you couldn't even find the scores back in 1992. So they just couldn't think of everything. So that is why they, they were equally divvying out international rights amongst them, because they were thinking, well, equal shares of nothing is, is nothing, right? Let's, let's not get too excited about this. Here we are. 28 years later, the international rights are about to be worth more than the domestic rights. Suddenly, what on earth are we doing splitting this stuff evenly? Ah, that's not in the tripartite agreement. Brilliant. Let's have a row about it. So you're right in that if it's not written down, they're going to argue about it. On the key point of promotion and relegation, unfortunately, that is written down. And to walk away from that, well, I mean, you know, that would be the biggest fight of all time. Who knows? We might get there, but we're not there yet. Just a final one on that, Jack. Do you think British owners, and bearing in mind we made this big thing of, oh, British sports and promotion and relegation is such a huge thing and, you know, doing it the right way is so important. Do you think actually the number of foreign owners in the Premier League could give some of the British owners something be, something to hide behind if they wanted to go down a certain path? I.e., well, you know, we, we, were let, we were led down this path by all the foreigners who wanted to do this, not us. Yeah, I mean, look look at the debates at the moment about continuing the about playing the Premier League out this season. I think lots of the owners of the teams who don't want relegation are British. I imagine, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating here, but if I was Gold and Sullivan, I would dearly want there to be, never be relegation again from the Premier League. Of course you would. Like, if I... And I think there's no... Again, there is no rational reason to think that British owners of Premier League teams have, like, the traditional best interests of English football at heart. Of course they don't. Why would they? How important do you think... And I'm going to come to you on this, David, because obviously if we don't talk Arsenal at some point, everybody who listens to any podcast that has your name on it and doesn't mention Arsenal gets very angry with all of us in the replies. Um uh, Stan Kroenke is 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 silent Stan for for a lot of the supporters. He's not alone in being a silent owner. Do you why why is he silent? And then we'll open it up to a, a wider discussion about you know how much owners should talk or 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 not. Well, this is quite a layered answer. He's extremely busy with his various projects, US sports franchises, building the new LA Rams stadium at huge expense. And he doesn't quite get it, back to that phrase we used earlier. In terms of how things work over here, it was very clear early on when he started attending the Arsenal annual general meetings. He got caught out a couple of times. On other times, he didn't speak at all. He's never really opened up to the media. A couple of bits he's done haven't particularly succeeded in connecting him with with the Arsenal fan base. And then comes his son, Josh, who is a director at the club. I think he has been since 2013, could be mistaken, but He's stepping up and taking an increasing role now. And therefore, in the words of Josh Kroenke, when I speak, I speak on behalf of my father. And when my father speaks, he speaks on behalf of me. So he's almost taken on an equal role in the um, Kroenke empire when it comes to sports teams, and especially so at Arsenal. So Stan Kroenke may be the figurehead in terms of name, but he's now not the, the figurehead in terms of operations. That's very much being led by Josh in 
in conjunction with the executives on on the ground here and Josh does get it I've met him and spent time with him interviewed him he's still learning um, he's still getting to grips with it all he's still learning about the club and processes English football um, and they're going to learn a lot during this crisis I always think it's amusing Jack with owners if they don't say anything they get criticised for, for being silent whether that be Abramovich Kroenke Mike Ashley and then there are fans of other clubs, I don't know, maybe West Ham fans who think, God, oh, I wish I wish <laughs> whatever they talk, it's like, God, I wish they wouldn't say anything. It just it just makes it worse. Just one more thing on that. And in fairness to the Cronkies, they've spoken more than a lot of owners. Um, yet he's still referred to as silent Stan. He did do a few media bits and Josh has done interviews, a long one with me last summer and um, various other bits. He did a, a big one in the summer with the Arsenal website. So um, it's interesting. We, we've never heard really, maybe once at the start from Roman Abramovich, never to my knowledge really from the Glazers. Um, so yeah, sorry to interrupt, but but the, the, the Cronkies have spoken more than others. Yeah, like Tony Fernandez at QPR, he doesn't speak as much now as he used to, but he used to speak far too much and you would like to tweet all his thoughts about selections and performances and transfers. And everything. So clearly there's no, you know, I think there probably is no right answer to this question. But I do think that fans, I think fans have a right to hear from the people who make decisions at the club. And there's a strange situation we get in football media, which everybody, everyone in this podcast will be familiar with, which is that the only people who speak in public every week is the manager. And yet to ask the manager about, you know, questions about investments or, you know, FFP bans, or are you going to sell the club, or whatever. Like, there's millions of off-field questions. There's no point in asking the head coach about that because he, you know, he might not understand it or he might not know. So clearly, there's sh- people who actually make the decisions and who own the club should be much, much, much more publicly accountable than they are. And that doesn't mean doing like soft interviews with club websites. It means doing actual, actual media with journalists. But unfortunately, they've got no reason to do it because no one's going to tell them to. No, but lower down they have actually, haven't they, Matt? And and we should be fair here in all of this. Whilst owners at the top might be be quiet the majority of the time, you go lower down and it might be... I don't know, Darren McAntony at Peterborough. It tends to be League One clubs that I'm going to cite here, but Darren McAntony at, uh, at Peterborough, Andy Holt at Accrington, Andy Pilly at Fleetwood in in, in recent uh, weeks with, with the coronavirus. They're all very open about how they run their football club, actually. That's the most interesting thing, about how they run it and the money involved and the budgets that they're working to. Yeah, I mean, it, there's there's just a, a growing divide, really, in, in just the amounts of money these guys have, the size of the clubs, but also just, you know, how how they choose to operate. I mean, you mentioned those names. I'd throw a few more in. I think Gary Sweet at, at, at Norwich is fantastic. Um, and there, there's plenty, and I think during this crisis, it's been no. Look, it, it really hasn't been that hard finding League One, League Two guys, uh, even some Championship, you know, chief execs to talk to us. They, they, they have a lot to say. Trying to find Premier League bosses is is much harder. Now, some of it is because, you know, that where are they? What are they doing? Do they feel the need to explain? Do do they live? You know, are they surrounded? 
by people asking them about their club. Go Is on. there a misconception on, especially during the, the coronavirus pandemic, everybody said, why are the players being asked to take pay cuts when the club's owned by a billionaire? And a, a lot of people on the other side of the fence have said to me, you have no idea the business commitments that they've got on top of this club and how badly some of their businesses are struggling. And separate to that, without trying to defend the fact that they're very wealthy, saying um, that a lot of this money is 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 locked up, it's not available, etc. So is there a, a lot that's not known about their lives outside the football club that mitigates any of this kind of criticism and, and unknown around them? They're busy. Well, yeah, well, look, whether it mitigates it or not is up to you, is up to the listeners to make their own minds up. But everything you've just said is true. You know, you can have a billion pounds worth of wealth but you know, ninety-nine percent of it can be tied up in property. You know, you, that doesn't mean you've got it in the in your pocket. So cash flow, of course, is huge. And there are some enormously, you know, let, never mind, never mind the sovereign wealth funds. Never mind. Let's just say, let's just say the Newcastle deal has gone through, right? Everyone's aware that the Saudis are ludicrously wealthy, right? But then they'll go, hold on a minute, the share price has crashed. Now, does that really mean that the Saudis? Suddenly, you know, on their uppers. No, no, he doesn't. That's not how life works. You know, Mike, Mike Ashley is a very, very wealthy man. The, the, the almost the day the lockdown started, the share price of Fraser Group, which is where he has most of his wealth, he owns two thirds of share of Fraser Group. That is his high street retail empire. It lost half its value. It's crept back a tiny bit, but nearly every, nearly every publicly listed company, and there's a few out there. There's a few in the Premier League. Guys like Foson at Wolves and one of Aston Villa's owners, um, since we're here, he, you know, he's he's got some publicly listed companies. Nearly all of them lost paper wealth. So you know, does that mitigate things? That you know, are they are they genuinely concerned? I mean, no, because when you're when you when you have that much money, does it really matter? A lot of these people have been through crises. There was a big commodities crisis in 2015. So you know, the Usmanovs of this world, Abramovich. All saw a dent in 2015. It's bounced back. A lot of them have been through the, the the crash in 2008. I mean, the other thing, of course, that gets mentioned is we've got guys like Joe Lewis in the mix, who's he's the he's the money man behind Spurs. You've got um, some some seriously clever City guys, Wall Street guys at Liverpool. They could be making money right now. If you, if you're a if you made your money in a hedge fund, and there's quite a few hedge fund guys that that are involved in Premier League and, and Championship clubs. Don't, don't think that they're losing money right now. They could be get, they could be making money. Know what you're doing. You could be making money when the stock markets are falling. So it's a really, really, really complicated picture. Do either of you know if this criticism and flack that often comes the way of owners from fan bases, from the media, even breaches the surface of their armour? Do, does does it get to them at all? Do we Do we know if they care one jot about the speculation and criticism around them? I'd be surprised... Um, certainly, the very, very top level, I don't think they care because they're so they're so rich and powerful. Uh, I don't think it really matters what football what football fans think about them. Maybe maybe slightly lower down the pyramid, particularly if it's someone who's bought a club for reasons of personal vanity. You know, you do that so that someone will build a statue of you or sing your name or name a stand after you, and then when suddenly you get you know get out of our club death threats and all the rest of it then i imagine i imagine it must be really tough it must be really tough like i'm sure sullivan and gold for example were deeply deeply upset by that protest against them at the west ham game uh, was it a year ago roughly i think maybe 18 months ago because you know they they i'm sure they do see themselves as custodians but i don't imagine that you know someone on the 
Roman Abramovich, Abu Dhabi level particularly cares what football fans think. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And, and um, you know, Mike Ashley, for example, I mean, he's he's you know he's very much the poster boy for the, a lot of this stuff, isn't he? Famously thick-skinned. You know, I've 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 watched him in front of select committees being pounded for for whatever outrage he's he's you know he's he's done, be it you know zero hours contracts. And this is a man who doesn't appear to give one. All right. You know he ha- he knows he know he knows what he's about. He's got a very tight loyal group. He can look those guys in the eyes. You know he he you know he feels that I've made an awful lot of money, paid my taxes. Do you know what? I don't care what you think about me. And I think that um, is a quite a common trait amongst successful people. Now on the on the flip side, I was I was thinking of a, of a, a guy I know you know David because you I remember you did a really good sort of series of interviews with him and that was Vincent Tan you know he, he, or, or the another one Tony Fernandez I mean that those guys looked like they really really wanted to be custodians and they really wanted to put the the scarf on and they wanted to be loved and do you know what they found it hard I thought when they weren't. Do you know why it's so hard for them? It's because that in many of their other businesses and walks of life and home environments, and you mentioned Vincent Tan, who's the head of the Bajaya Corporation. Anyone wants to go and look it up, you can see their range of businesses. Um, I went over to interview him in Kuala Lumpur at his birthday celebration, which is an annual event there, which has all employees or, or hundreds of employees from the Bajaya group who turn up at this huge Bajaya um, sort of conference venue to celebrate and laud him over a series of events. And the, the sort of star attraction was this life-size dragon. And it was a birthday <laughs> cake, a dragon birthday cake that they, whoever made it, was, was like the greatest gift that they could have bestowed upon him. And there were these food markets and everyone wearing t-shirts and, and basically worshipping the ground he walks on because he's employed them for, for years and, and the business is doing very well and they earn and some of them come from underprivileged backgrounds and then they come into the environment of a Premier League football stadium and they think everybody's going to do the same because that's what they've become used to and when they don't it's quite a shock to the system. Although that's a bit like what you demand at an athletic Christmas party isn't it David really (laughs) that kind of you know cake all for you and we all yeah we've only had one and I was late so I didn't get quite that treatment. Celebrate his arrival. But just, just another example, just to add there, of just of just an example of a foreign owner who came into the game, appeared to love it, and just had their heart broken. And I often think of this: is, is Randy Lerner at Aston Villa? Yeah. You know, he's a remarkable story. I mean, he effectively inherited an NFL team, the Cleveland Browns, that you know have had their own problems, and there's a whole other podcast there. But but didn't appear to love owning the Cleveland Browns, but he liked. He see. He certainly seems to appear like uh to like owning aston villa and he didn't say a great deal you know he's, he's a he's quite a private guy but i remember going along to certainly a couple i think of his of his sort of meet the press um moments in at aston villa he spent an awful lot of his own money an awful lot of his own money on improving the ground improving the training ground just genuinely tarting the place up investing in the team you know they had a couple of good seasons and you know he he left a broken man you know, he, you know whether I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not an Aston Villa fan, but I don't, I don't think is he loved? Is he cherished? I mean, it, it, it all seemed quite sad at the end, and I just, and I, and I think there's there's slight parallels with Ellis Short at Sunderland. I don't think Ellis Short was as good as owner. I don't think he was, as, you know, anywhere near as loved as Randy Lerner was. But it, it didn't end well. 
It, it, it often does not end well. I don't know, you know, so to go back to the original question, why do they do it? I have no idea. Let's uh, let's turn turn our attention to to states buying football clubs. Uh, Jack, do you think this is going to happen more and more now, given several of the subjects we've already spoken about on this podcast? Yeah, I do think so, because it is so... Like, the deal is so attractive. If, you're ve- if you are a sovereign wealth fund and you want... And, you know, you've got tons and tons of money, and if your interests are visibility, popularity, promoting your brand. I mean, I think there's that famous line that Gary Cook said when he was selling City to Abu Dhabi in 2008, which he said, if you want something to be a proxy for your brand, then Manchester City will be that proxy. Um, So the deal is a fantastic deal if you're, you know, Kuwait or Hong Kong or any other sovereign wealth fund out there. You get a stake in the biggest global media entity that there is, which is the Premier League, you get the support of millions of people across the world with your brand. You get an association of your values, whether, you know, in the case of Abu Dhabi, that's kind of intelligence, foresight, having money but spending it in the right way, class, all that stuff. So it's an incredibly attractive deal. And all you have to do is hand over a few, you know, a few hundred billion pounds or whatever it is. But if you've got all that money and what you want is those other things, then it's a really, really good way of doing that. Um, so I'm sure that people, you know, other other people in the same position that Abu Dhabi were in in 2008 will look at the Abu Dhabi example and want to do the same. And the evidence for that, I'm afraid, is, is the evidence that clearly is Newcastle United. Uh, and then it leads to huge conflicts of emotion and interest from fans in particular and, and the local community and the footballing community, Matt. Well, absolutely. Look, I think the... Um... <sighs> The, the business case and the sort of uh, the the prospectus for for sports washing is is indisputable. It works, and it's been working for a long, long time, perhaps longer than we realise. You know, just just be it. You know, staging sports events, and this goes back to sort of Ali and Foreman. Uh, but I think in Zaire, you know, this is not a new thing. People have been bidding for Olympic Games to project an image about the you know their country, be it their might, the fact that they're the coming power. Uh, they could be doing it to sort of deflect criticism. Because the thing about sport, sport sends this wonderful, powerful signal. You know, it's 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 energetic, it's, it's alive, it gets you in the papers. But I think it also kind of gets you a, a seat at the table. It gets you conversations with broadcasters and sponsors. You know, you can bring, you know, one of the one of the, the things we've seen so so clearly with with Abu Dhabi at Man City, but also Qatar at Paris Saint Germain, is it you know you you bring your airline with you, you bring your financial services with you, and it gives them a platform and a stage. You know who who really knew? Let's be honest, who or what Etihad was, but we but we do now. You know whether I'm going to fly them or not, I don't know. But you know in terms of their brand recognition, it's gone in, certainly for me from zero to yeah, I know they're an airline. So you know that's all part of it. But I think the the point you're making is. And I don't want to turn this whole podcast into another airing of all the issues around Saudi Arabia and Newcastle, but they're there. We can't ignore them because what 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 owning a football team immediately gets you is almost unconditional love. It's like buying a dog, but it's even better because this yeah. dog will will jump on Twitter and defend you. This 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 it is remarkable. It, it's it's. It's unconditional love. It's it's a, a a sort of army of of angry of angry Twitter bots, and you'll see some quite remarkable things quite soon 
where people who really couldn't give a monkeys about the war in Yemen or the, you know, the treatment of dissidents in Saudi Arabia will suddenly start doing whataboutery and will suddenly start defending it with experts. I mean, that's, that's pretty staggering. Sure, but, but, but you're, you're, you're getting unconditional love if you do things the right way. And and I think you know, and we talk about some football owners haven't do, done things the right way. Mike Ashley maybe being the prime example there, and then not not getting that unconditional love. And when George Colkin, who writes on Newcastle for the Athletic, was on one of our podcasts, you know, he made the point: if 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 an owner comes in and does things right for the local people and the local area, and invests in that and in them, then then it is understandable that they will get love because they are trying to help the area. Now, all the other things, you know, you start with your own your own house, don't you, and your own doorstep and your own level of living before you start worrying about elsewhere. That was George's point. And if they come in and, you know, show love for the area and want to help the area and build the area, it's understandable they're going to get love. And I'm not just talking about, you know, I've mentioned it several times about what the ABW group have done for that area of Manchester. Some won't care about those many and very important issues. Some, and I'm not besmirching at all, I'd probably include myself in this, don't know, don't understand the full background and issues and either haven't sought to find out more or don't want to and others and you know you only need to read on the athletic uh really good piece about this uh hashtag cans uprising almost because they are so desperate to get rid of the incumbent that anybody else whatever baggage they come with is welcome in comparison to the outgoing party and that makes me feel that in this particular situation at Newcastle, which, I mean, Matt will we'll, we'll clarify, is probably the, or has the potential to be the most toxic of all of the takeovers. And, and that's saying something, given protests around the Glazers, there wasn't quite so much, well, there wasn't nearly so much around Manchester City, and certainly not with the Bramovich, which we've talked about earlier. This has the potential to be huge, yet despite all of that, many of those Newcastle fans will see this takeover, if it happens, as being the moment their club was was saved. Yeah, look, you know, I'm hearing reading the same things as you, and I have enormous sympathy for Newcastle United fans. I, I get all that. This is not a criticism of that group of people. You are right to say, though that we have never had a takeover, potential takeover, this controversial. We've never had a potential Premier League owner that brings this much baggage. I'm sorry, okay, who you, who you list, and yes, there are problems with many of them. No one has brought this much baggage to the table, be it uh, deeply unpopular, highly controversial wars, be it massive disputes with Qatar, be it home, human rights abuses at home, be it the execution of a journalist quite recently, imprisoning uh, wealthy people in his own country, basically sort of gangsterism. You know, there's a there's another Saudi prince that owns a, a Premier League club. What kind of influence, what kind of influence does the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia exert over them? And that's before we even get into something that is actually in the owners and directors test. Piracy. The whole story of piracy and how Saudi Arabia has sought to uh, trash be in sports, the Qatari-owned 
rights holder of Premier League rights in the Middle East and North African region. Something that the Premier League has supported its rights holder. Something that the Premier League has complained about to Saudi Arabia. So it's a unbelievably thorny, complicated, problematic takeover. That's all said. I just want to go back to something that you said, Mark, and I, I hear this argument all the time about Abu Dhabi and Man City, and I kind of get it. I, of course, I get it. I, you know, I live—I don't live too far away, and I can see with my own eyes what that money has done to East Manchester. But let's not kid ourselves about why they're doing that, and what they're doing it for, and what it's all really about. Yes, of course, there are fringe benefits, and of course, Manchester City Council would be <laughs> would be foolish to turn it down. But can we at least be? Can, can we open our eyes as to, as to what this is about? It is a quid pro quo. It helps them with financial fair play. It does grease the wheels. It does, of course, buy that love, support and bolster that love. But let's not pretend that Abu Dhabi really, you know, why does Abu Dhabi care about East Manchester? Why does Saudi Arabia really care about Newcastle? It's it's, it's part of the whole. You know, the, the one hand washes the other. So I just think we just need to be, you know, just clear in our minds as to... Just understanding that Abu Dhabi does not love Miles Platting. You know, it it, it just doesn't. It doesn't no, but, care. It, but 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 if I live in Miles Platting, or if I am a kid in East Manchester, and I now benefit from the facilities that have been put in place, then then I have uh, then that has created a better existence for me. What, whatever the motives, whatever the sporting motives, or not, or political motives, or financial motives. At the top end, at the very local end, if my life has improved on the streets because of what has happened in the regeneration of the region, that's what matters to me. Fine. But let's at least just be knowing about it. And I completely understand why that person in Miles Platting would be angry about the North being left behind and about the choices that we've made as a nation and the, and the neglect that's been allowed to happen. I get all that. And it's, it's an absolute travesty that sovereign wealth funds from the Middle East are doing the kind of work that our government should have been doing over the last 20, 30, 40 years. A travesty. But let's not just, let's not, let's not eulogise and, and make these people and canonise these people. You know, they are doing it because it, because it suits them. It helps their purpose. And as long as we're all in it together you, and we... And we Go on, I'm ranting. If you, if you, <laughs> no, 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 but, that, but that's fine. But then do you, do you, do you go the other way? And look at so I don't know. Look at the and 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 this may feel slightly odd if you aren't from, if you aren't from the northwest. But do you look at what is going on with Manchester Airport and worry that the whole regeneration and rebuilding of Manchester Airport is being done with Chinese money? I'll be honest, and and I'd love Matt's counter perspective. I don't. I don't think of the airport as being a community asset like I personally see a football club and the sort of pride and warmth I take in in a football club and and how it should traditionally be at the heart of the community it's where you spend your Saturdays and and you go and it's a leisurely pursuit and I don't know there's some sort of ethical side about that that I want some community that I want that I don't see in an airport which I see as a means to an end to travel and um and that feels purely like a business and a mode of transport a facilitator of w what i want to do and where i want or need to go whereas 
the football club is a choice and therefore you're invested in it more emotionally, no, Matt? Yeah, of course. There are differences between football clubs. We have different responses to them. Everyone talks about them as businesses, but let's be honest, we it's not Tesco or Supermarket or, or, or Sainsbury's, is it? We, you know, we, we don't feel like them in that way. So I, I get the emotions around it. But just, to, just to, to go to the point about an airport or another key piece of public infrastructure, and the airport is actually owned by Manchester City Council. It is, it is a community asset. It might not feel like it is, but it is. It's a big revenue stream for, for, for Manchester. Um, does China seem like a cosy, friendly, benign force right now in the world? discuss i mean does it yeah. <laughs> i'll leave you to rant on that one <laughs> but no well put it let's let's flip it around let's flip it around do you think china would let us build an airport in beijing do you think they'd let the british own an airport in beijing no but but my, but but therefore the the point is if foreign investment is being encouraged by our political elite and our political authorities then a football clubs owners regenerating their community you can understand why there then there is then attachment from that community to the football club if that if that foreign investment is being allowed yes then, no, i do i, I understand that yeah point. i understand yeah. that point. Well, now whether foreign investment is right or wrong is a whole different is a whole different subject but as long as it is allowed you can then understand why the attachment is there you, you can and, and you could make an argument and, and maybe uh, potential overseas owners turn off now. Let's take them for all they can get, right? If these idiots want to come over here and buy our clubs, let's I tell you what. Let's see if they'll buy us some schools and build some roads for us as well. Brilliant! If these if these if these idiots want to keep you know buying our clubs, you know, let's see what else we can take them for. You can start listening again now. Yeah. So look, I completely understand. Uh, yeah, uh, that that that's potentially an argument here. But let's let's. Be careful and knowing and mindful about what we're doing. We are letting sometimes potentially problematic owners, states, people with agendas, hidden or otherwise, buy our key assets. And football clubs are one of them. On that note, and going back to Mark's question on um, essentially state ownership, if the Newcastle takeover involving Saudi Arabian money goes through... And we've got Saudi Arabia at the table, we've got Qatar at the table, we've got Americans at the table, uh, we've got Chinese at the table. Conversely, could it start to puff nation states because they know they won't be able to mix it with the likes of Saudi Arabia? Could we actually see less going forward because they would rather take their money elsewhere where, where it can p potentially be more profitable from a financial and image point of view? Or is this the start of things to come? Oh, it's really hard to say. I mean, it, I mean, we're asking kind of massive geopolitical questions there about where the action's going to be, you know, who's going to have the money, what kind of state, what kind of nation in 10, 15, 20 years' time is going to be that kind of front foot, right, it's our moment now. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of what's driving the Middle East's interest, relatively sudden recent interest in sport, everything from staging golf tournaments to, to tennis and, and cricket tournaments and what have you, is an acknowledgement that their moment will pass. Their wealth is built on something that will run out. And unless they diversify their economies, unless they become famous for something else in 50, 60, 70 years time, they're going to be back where they were. So, you know, there is there is sort of an existential threat that's driving their investment. And, you know, Saudi Arabia's investment in sport 
is is they're coming relatively late to the party, largely because they've had so much oil and oil, really. You know, they haven't felt they've needed to, but they, they, they get it now. <sighs> you know, who knows where we'll be in 20 years' time. But perhaps these are opportunities for other sports. If uh, the Premier League is a close shop for oligarchs and, uh, and, and Middle East sovereign wealth funds, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, rich people from other countries will invest in cycling, athletics. Who knows? Just quickly, do you think the era of English British owners in the Premier League uh, in terms of new incoming domestic owners it is over I mean somebody like Sir Jim Ratcliffe has the level of wealth required but otherwise you very rarely hear about the potential of domestic investment in Premier League clubs although although it, it, give it given you've mentioned given you mentioned Sir Jim Ratcliffe there of course that backs up Matt's point in that him and Ineos went into cycling. He's a Manchester United fan and he lives in Chelsea, but he's he's not going to buy a Premier League club if you listen to him. He's had a look at Chelsea and he's decided it's it's too rich for his blood. It doesn't mm. make sense. He's not a fool. And what's he done? He's bought has he bought Nice, hasn't he? He's already got one in Switzerland. Yes. And as you say, he he is now deciding where where can I really make an impact? I can make an impact in cycling. I can make an impact in sailing. I can make an impact with the marathon record. The list of potential British Premier League new owners, guys that don't already own one is small is small it's interesting that one of them i maybe you know is, is actually involved in the newcastle uh, deal the reuben brothers you know they are they are genuine yeah. a-listers isn't the um isn't the other point with that then is that sir jim ratcliffe will use him as this example here and in also gone right we're not going a premier league club's too too much for us despite despite his wealth so we'll look at cycling or or nice or or whatever it may be what does that say for EFL clubs? Because their because their their future their future in the main at the moment in this current situation is very worrying. But where are the EFL owners of the future? I'll start this quickly and then pass it over to Matt because I know somebody that's interested in buying a championship club, and he explains to me that there's plenty of appetite out there despite what you might think and. The bigger issue is actually at the moment with him personally and a number of others um, getting hold of their money, enough money, the the, the required money during this um, global health and therefore also in, in large part financial crisis. Um, but he said there's never been a better opportunity because you, you've basically got your pick of the clubs in the EFL and there is appetite out there. It's just about picking the right moment and having the resources to do it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think I think that's where the value is. It's also where the greatest risk is, of course. You can absolutely you know, lose your shirt there. And getting into the Premier League is very, 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 very hard and costs a lot of money. However, just the valuations of the clubs, it just makes it, you know, it, it, it's just so much more easy, so much more accessible. Some of these clubs you can pick up for a pound because you're just taking on the debt. And look, that is where the, the wealthy Brits... You know that's where you'll still find them. Find them. Mel Morris at, at Derby. I mentioned Steve Gibson before, but the Coates family at Stoke. Uh, is it Stephen Lansdowne at Bristol? He owns a fortune, mm-hmm. doesn't yep. he? You know, and so on. There, there. That is that is. I mean, even the Allen family. I know that they're sort of Egyptian descent, but they're very much sort of north northeast people at Hull. There are still wealthy Brits that own English clubs. They are just a dwindling band in the Premier League, they're being priced out. And anyway, if I had a bit of money, that's where I'd be looking. I'd be looking for value. I'd be looking for, you know, the proverbial sleeping giant or a, or a story, that a club that has a story to tell, has some potential, um, you know, own, own, owns its stadium, has a, maybe a good patch of kids 
you know, comes from a sort of hotbed of talent. That's that that's that's where you're that's where you're looking. I think that seems a, a very appropriate place to leave it. Uh Matt and Jack and David, thank you. Uh, and we'll have another future football pod next week here on The Athletic.